Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 340. I am Tom Maluli and I'm joined today by Brendan Maluli and Tim Maluli. Hey guys. Hey. Hello. So Tim... We have to talk about quilting today. Right. Uh, So the beginning of every year, for the last handful of years, Ben Carlson at Red Holds Wealth Management puts out uh, his performance quilt where he lists a handful of different asset classes and shows how they performed over the years. He just put out his one for 2020 since we have all the data and all the numbers from 2020. And it's always interesting to see sort of the randomness or the... uh, different assortment of where the different asset classes line up. An interesting point to to lead off with is that this is the second year in a row in 2020 that large caps were at the top of the list, but going back to 2011, they hadn't been number one for the rest of that decade. So it was two in a row and then they weren't in the top spot at all. It kind of just shows how it's hard to predict what's coming next. It really does look like a patchwork quilt. You know, they, they do each different uh, style group in colors. So when you look at it at first glance, it really does look like a quilt because there's different colors all over the place, patches uh, everywhere. But that really does drive the point home that you can't just say, I'm just, I'm just going to buy a blue chip portfolio with dividends and just let it rip. Yeah, I, I think the message is, is that nobody stays at the top forever, you know, and in in most cases, in fact, if you do see a stretch of an asset class at the top of the list for a year, two or three, uh, it's normally followed by them being in the basement after that. And so if you're trying to go all in on what has worked, I think you're going to be disappointed on a go forward basis, uh, especially if we're looking one, two, three years into the future. You, you can't just pile into what what's in vogue now. That's not a, that's not a strategy for success. So I know that we've talked about this uh, a couple of times over the years, but forgive me for being the broken record in the group. Emerging markets were on fire. Now I'm dating myself because this was 2004 and 2005. I received more unsolicited calls from clients asking for us to put money into emerging markets in 2006 than any other time before or since in my career and 2006, seven, eight, nine, I've lost count. Emerging markets were in the cellar exactly as you just described for the next several years. Mm-hmm. And so reading, you know, Barron's and some of these other financial mags that tell you this sector is hot is almost a sell signal. It could be. Also, I think a good point to make is that some years being what we've described as in the cellar or in last place on this performance quilt doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bad place to be. Um, it just means that the other areas performed better. So in, in 2020, there's uh, 11, including cash, there's 11 different groups listed on this quilt. Nine of the 11 were in positive territory. Yeah. So you could be towards the bottom of the performance quilt in terms of how you did last year, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you lost money in those investments. It just means that they might not have gone up as much as large caps who were in 
first place, but it's interesting to note that in a year like 2020, nine out of 11 areas of the market that he talks about here were positive. So Brendan, does it make sense to try and move your money around into these sectors as they're at or approaching the top? No. I don't think you should ever allocate money based on recent performance. I think that's a very bad way to put money to work. I think that if you had something that that was towards the bottom of this list last year or maybe even the last two years, it's probably a good signal that that your patience will be rewarded and probably sooner rather than later. And you you almost certainly regret taking money out of that to pile into whatever was at the top. I think that's that's buy high, sell low. That's the opposite of, of what we're trying to do as investors. I also thought it was interesting on on the chart that you look at 2020 as a year where like everything everything worked kind of, mm-hmm. meaning like most of these things were were positive uh, to varying degrees, but they were all places that made monies. I mean, money last year. I mean, even uh, government bonds or the aggregate bond index you made like six or seven percent, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, considering you know where we started from and how much of that was comp- uh, comprised of yields maybe one or two percent right Right. considering all the appreciation all the talk that we heard throughout the year about how you shouldn't be in bonds or why own bonds if if interest rates and yields are are this low it's been a dec it's been a decade now with people saying bond yields can't go any lower like if you have money in bonds you're going to lose money like this this is terrible like you you can't do this and it's been dead wrong for a decade so i don't want to hear it anymore uh interest rates are super low. I think you need to understand that and the dynamic that it creates in your portfolio in terms of how you allocate to it. But I'm, I'm tired of hearing the doomsday predictions for people who want to have some portion of their money in bonds. There's there's probably a good reason for that if they have a financial plan. Right. And so I, I think people tend to forget one part of the picture that tends to get overlooked is what kind of inflation is out there in the system. If there's a lot of inflation, we're probably going to see rates hopefully at or above the rate of inflation. If there's no inflation in the system, which is pretty much what we've been working our way through for eight or nine years now, you shouldn't expect rates to return much of anything. We've talked about this now several times on the podcast that we we don't necessarily buy bonds for clients for the yield, buy them more as a bumper to help smooth out the volatility in the markets. Right, and they're not they're not an inflation hedge either. That's the stocks out of the portfolio. Right. So you know, inflation can do whatever, and I still don't know that 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 makes bonds a bad investment. But but looking like like so, 2020 everything worked. And if you look at 2019 on this chart, basically everything worked too. Not that past has to be prologue or anything, but in terms of setting expectations, the last time on this chart that we had two years in a row where everything worked were 2016 and 2017. And then the following year, the top performing asset class on that chart was cash. Right. So just saying that like after two very good years in the market, not not without volatility, I'm, I'm <laughs> obviously... Uh, aware of what happened uh, roughly, you know, nine months ago. Now, uh, you know, the market went berserk and was down 30 percent. So you, um, you can't discount that that happened. It didn't fit neatly into a calendar year, so you don't see it at the end of the year return numbers because of the recovery. Um, but th- we we can't just continuously have years where everything works and there's going to be volatility, and it's not because of anything specific. Uh, you're looking at two years like 2016 and 17 that are very different than 2019 and 2020. I mean, what what year 
was like 2020. I can't there hasn't think of, been one. I can't think of one. Right. And so and so in 2018 wasn't a super great year for stocks, uh, and the drawdown in them happened to happen right, right at the at end, the of, the end year. of the year. Yeah. So yeah. performance numbers didn't look great on on a year over year basis. Then I guess I'm more getting at the idea that like there wasn't anything specific in like the news or the headlines or politics that made that a bad year to invest. In fact, it was fine for most of the year, and then at the end of the year yeah, there was bad, there was a brief right? yeah. drawdown which we recovered in 2019. So I'm just saying like this year could be a, a rough year for stocks. It, it may not be. And if it's a rough year for stocks, it's not because of anything specific that we can put our finger on now. Right. I mean, like if you take 2018, the, these two examples, like last year and then 2018 and put them side by side and compare like, okay, what ha- outside of the market, the, the headlines and everything that was going on, like what happened in these two years? And then say, ask someone, which year do you think the market did better? And, you know, people are going to look at the headlines, what happened in 2020? And my guess is that most people will be like, oh, I think stocks did better in 2018. Relative to what happened last year, it seemed pretty calm. Right. So you're saying if you like listed out all the news right. items, and, here's like, what happened in 2020, in this, 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 yeah, this. Right. Here's what happened in 2018, this, this, this. Right. Which, 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 which one do you the... want to invest in? Exactly. 2018, for sure. And you would end up losing money as a stock investor that year and making very good money in 2020. So great point, Tim. Yeah. Kind of going along with this and, and like what's worked versus people's perception of what's working. Batnick, Michael Batnick, also at Ritholtz Wealth Management, had a post this week titled Rotation. And he was talking about, uh, he calls them the fan mag. Some people call them fang, but you add a couple stocks in there. And it's uh, comprised of Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, just the giant tech names that everyone associates the big tech stocks with. I bet if you were to ask people, you know, which stocks did the best in, in 2020 or over the last, you know, handful of months, people would probably anticipate that like Amazon and, and Google and, you know, because of the, the shutdown. Everyone, everyone stayed home and shopped online. Amazon did great. Yeah. Big tech right. is propping up the market and, yeah. and all of these gains in the recovery. You have yeah. to be in large caps and technology right. to make any money. I mean, right. we we that was the narrative coming out yeah. of the the drop that we saw in in February, March of last year. The whole recovery, April, yeah. May, June was if if you weren't in tech stocks and large cap stocks, then you weren't making any money. And we fielded calls from people about wanting to put their entire accounts into Amazon or into yeah. like one specific technology stock name. Right. And so Michael took a look at just over the last six months relative to the rest of the stocks in the S&P 500, how have these done? And besides Apple, the other five stocks, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Netflix, Amazon, they all underperformed the the rest of the S&P 500 index. So Amazon was 455th out of the S&P 500. So that means only 51 stocks or, or you know, roughly 50 stocks in the in the S and P 500 did worse than Amazon over the last six months. So if you took the general narrative over the summer of hey, I have to be in large cap and tech if I want to make any money, and piled into all that stuff and sold out of whatever you were coming from, uh, that ended up being about the worst time to do that yeah. uh, that that you could have picked. Yeah. Well, we also fielded a few calls from folks late in the summer 
who questioned, why do we have these small cap and mid cap indices mm. in our portfolio? They haven't done, I won't say what they said, but they haven't done anything. Yeah. It was almost, when we got those calls, it was almost within that week when somebody lit the fuse so in, I've, in these other stocks. I have some numbers too that, that incorporate international, which I would throw into that bucket. Absolutely. As people have complained about international stocks for years on end. Right. Since September, so through the fourth quarter of the year, international developed markets and emerging markets have both outperformed the S&P 500 by six and 9% respectively. Um, so chuck that narrative out the window. Again, right. at, at the time you want to throw in the towel or you've had enough of the underperformance from an asset class, it proves you wrong. It's, it's also interesting to note that since the fourth quarter of 2020, small cap stocks outperformed the S&P 500 by 24%. And their mid cap counterparts were not far behind. And so to, to your point, small caps, mid caps, international, basically everything except US large cap, since the end of the summer has been a better place to be um, than what the narrative at the time would have told you. And, and interestingly enough, especially with small caps, you saw the US dollar over that same time period down 2%. And, and normally people would predict that that would be a negative for small cap stocks, which are supposed to do well when the dollar is strong. Correct. So nobody knows nothing. Right? What's <laughs> that is just the answer. Take right. take all of the textbook stuff about like what's supposed to work and when and chuck it out the window or at least admit that we don't know for sure. So we have to have some some money in all of these different areas in appropriate amounts because we can't predict, especially over six three month, six month periods or, or year long periods, what's going to be the best place to be. And by the time we know, it's too late. Yeah, it doesn't mean the big tech stocks that we were just talking about. That doesn't mean sell out of them and pile into small caps or anything like that. But it, like you said, it just proves why you should have a mix of, of all of them. I mean, Batnick had similar statistics. The six tech stocks he was talking about were up 7% over that time. SPY, which is the S&P 500, was up 17%. And IWM, which is the Russell 2000, which is small cap stocks is up 45%. Yeah. So all of them were positive, though. It doesn't mean, going back to one of the first things I said, it doesn't mean that, you know, it was a bad place to be. It just means there was potentially, there were better places to be. Um, but like you said, we don't know when they're going to shift. We have to be aware of that. I, I brought with me into the conference room the first two pages of this week's Barron's, just to kind of show how the news publications surrounding our industry can, they're not intentionally misleading, but they're reporting what has happened and not what will happen. So they talk about how GameStop is missing the mark. Now we don't typically talk about individual stocks, but they said, you know, the run up in the retailer stock belies a sharp drop in sales and malls where their stores are are losing appeal, and that stock has just continued to move higher. We're not recommending GameStop, but it's just to show you the perception that's out there may be wrong. They also talk about how some of the old stocks uh, are still hanging in there, and they mention U.S. Steel and General Electric, which have not been good investments for fill-in-the-blank period of time, a long time. Then they talk about how the risks are rising 
for big tech names. Well, we just showed that that would have been a great headline to have in September. Uh, not necessarily. July. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. So, yeah. like, your point is they're not writing feature articles about what's going to work. They're, they're writing feature articles about what has already happened. That's the only thing they can do right. to, to defend them a little bit. Like, you don't write a feature article about this asset class that sucks and tell people to put their money into it. Why would they listen to you? Yeah. But, but you can tell them about what has worked and make a case for why it may continue. And who knows? Yeah. Pro- probably not a great place to be getting your advice. No. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a focus on what already happened. Now, Tim, you uh, maintain our scorebook, so to speak, and update us every couple of days on what's leading, what's not. And there have been many times where you've left my office and I'm unhappy. Right. I think, uh, yeah, so, you know, once a week I go through our research and we have scores of how different sectors are doing at the moment. Looking at some of the numbers that we were just talking about, it kind of aligns with what we saw in the research. For the last handful of years, the technology sector has been close to the top of this list in terms of relative performance. They've Um, been driving the bus. Yeah. You know, but we've seen it start to drop down on the list. But this is, like I've been saying, this is a relative list. So right. it doesn't, and you can see it in the score for the technology sector. It's not, the score itself for that sector isn't plummeting. Other things are just moving ahead of it. Right. So, I mean, when you're comparing different places in the market, I think it's important to just remember that it's all relative to one or the other, and it's not an absolute statement on buy this sell this or this is working this is not working it's just which one is these ones are slightly pulling ahead of the other ones there's rotation that happens at at all times okay that's going to wrap up episode 340 we appreciate you tuning in and catch up with us on the next episode